All right, this is the Brandon Adams podcast, episode three. My guest needs no introduction. It's Nate Silver. Uh, I'm going to use this opportunity to really dig into presidential betting odds because although we talk often, I don't get a chance to to really dig into this stuff. So, so at the moment, Trump is 42% in the betting markets. I guess we should open the conversation by by talking about the predictive power of betting markets in general and saying, uh, has anything changed there? Do we, do we have reason to think betting markets have become better or worse predictors? And what do we think in general about the predictive power of betting markets? So you mean political betting markets in particular? Or, yes. Um, I don't think political betting markets are terribly impressive. Um, if you look at their performance, they perform roughly as well as um, as models do, as published public models do, which in some sense, I think people are like, oh, these are just as good as like 538's predictions. In some sense, like that's actually very damning to like the the, predict- the prediction markets, right? If you can take publicly available data and you cannot improve on it, then it suggests that you're not adding very much value by aggregating different forecasts or by adding subjective whatever, et cetera. Um, so I think it's a very different situation than um, than say sports betting, where um, where the markets are more liquid, where the markets are more sophisticated, where people I think are less um, emotionally inclined. And I think I think these markets like um, often kind of reflect the political biases of the of the traders, um, because um, there's not enough money involved. Um, the structures are sometimes a little bit awkward. Um, I don't know why, right? But I think they're like, I mean, so that's as compared to like the 538 model or other kind of statistical ways of forecasting elections as compared to like classic punditry, they're probably a lot better, right? Like I'd rather kind of um, like listen to a prediction market than um, the panel on Morning Joe or something. Um, but but politics is funny. Um, I think there are a lot of people who have kind of a um, um, kind of a sophomoric knowledge of elections where they know kind of a few things and and not a lot of things and oftentimes in any market if you know a few things not a lot of things then you can be kind of the the sucker in the market potentially um so my priors are are like you know are not terribly positive as an empirical matter on how well they do um but i think if you had more capitalization right i mean you also have questions about like how efficient are like markets in general right so you have all the problems and all the advantages that you would have with regular types of markets. But I think there are um, unique reasons why political markets tend to underperform a little bit. Well, I would, I would guess based on my own observations that uh, you would have done well in betting markets trading based on the 538 predictions, especially uh, during the last election. But Uh, some of the problems you point out with betting markets, I think, might have to do with the fact that people in betting markets are very impatient. And if you look at observed data in betting, most of the bets happen now either in-game or just before the game. Mm-hmm. So people people like to get their entertainment fix immediately, yeah. and they they typically only have enough money in their betting account to fund like this week's bets. They don't really like those bets that have to wait a year or a year and a half. And I think that's been a, a big problem with the betting markets. And in particular, that um, that affects the betting markets on um, 
say some of the long shots that people might really care to get information about, say like a Buddha check or some, something like this, um, the odds because someone who was betting for or against them is, is uh, <clears throat> or someone who wants to lay is risking a lot of money and having to tie it up for a long period of time, you don't get an accurate representation. Yeah, or, or Andrew Yang is one where there have been times when um, recently when Andrew Yang was rated as the third most likely nominee, more likely than Bernie Sanders, more likely than Kamala Harris, which I think is, um, you know, at 538, we probably provide more coverage of Yang than most mainstream news outlets, but I think, you know, he's not more likely to win the nomination than Bernie Sanders, for example. Um, and I think that reflects the fact that he's kind of like someone who a lot of like people who are in the betting markets would like, right? He's kind of uh, tech bro and kind of like different and like an outsider, right? Um, he talks about math all the time. And so, so it's hard to look at that and not think there's some bias, but you're right. And there's also like an aspect of like technical trading where, um, where if you can anticipate changes in the conventional wisdom, right, they can probably buy or excuse me, make money in the interim. And I actually think that um, it's often very, very obvious when um, when the media is ready to change the narrative of the race in ways that probably don't actually affect like the underlying kind of fundamentals of the race very much at all. Right. But like um, it's pretty obvious. It was pretty obvious before the Elizabeth Warren surge um, that the media was kind of pining for a, a, a Elizabeth Warren surge and was kind of promoting polls that showed her doing well. And eventually she actually was doing well. Right. It's obvious right now as we're, as we're recording this, that like um, the media is ready for like a change in the narrative. They want Mayor Pete to come back. They want maybe Bernie to come back. I don't know. Right. They want Amy Klobuchar to do well. And so you could like, if you can anticipate like kind of um, what market sentiment is, which I think is actually fairly predictable in some ways, then, then maybe you're right to hold um, Warren at 40 when she should be 30 because she'll go to 50, right? Um, and so I've never kind of looked at that part of it. I know the kind of final end predictions um, are, they're, they're good, but they're not particularly insightful. They don't seem to add a lot of, of value relative to, to publicly available models. So speaking on narrative, I remember after the uh, the early debate where Harris attacked Biden and was a little bit of a media darling, she surged in the betting markets, uh, and then there's been a fairly intense reversal where she's she's now rated very very poorly by the betting markets. <clears throat> um, so right now we have Hillary has a piece of the betting markets at two and a half percent. Is there, is there any meaning there? Is that, is that, uh, I don't, um, I don't think people should assume that these markets reflect inside information. Um, and the reason why is if you cover the campaign, I do not participate in political betting markets. <laughs> um, if you cover the campaign, there are times when, um, when you learn about um, campaign developments before they're made public, because a lot of stuff is embargoed, right? If a new poll is going to come out um, from another news organization, some news organizations want all the other journalists of other places to get that poll because that poll, they want people to write about it, right? And if you have know what the poll's going to say in advance, you can write a story about it and feature it more prominently. Or you might know if a candidate's going to enter the race or drop out, or you might know uh, news that like is not yet public, right? Um, and I have not seen very many times when the markets correctly pick up on the inside uh. information 
um, that you have access to as a journalist. And so that means that there aren't very many journalists apparently who are who are trying to participate in markets. And it means that like, I don't know, I think people have this kind of magic belief in markets that kind of derives from places where markets just are more sophisticated and more liquid, you know, kind of, you know, 80% of the stuff. I don't know sports betting markets as well as you do, right? Maybe I'm in the sophomoric stage there. But like my impression is that like, um, you know, 80% of the time or 80% of the things I'm saying about political betting markets might not apply to like sports betting markets. Um, you know, although it does seem like, I don't know, um, sometimes like the, uh, is this true that like in sports betting markets are really kind of high profile events more likely to be mispriced? The Super Bowl or the final of the U.S. Open? I don't think so, but it's a debatable topic. Uh, certainly there have been times when the Super Bowl has appeared mispriced and, and a lot of the sharp money has been on, on one side. Uh, that sharp money hasn't always been right, but that's uh, there are people that believe that Super Bowls tend to be mispriced. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if it's true in general. And as you point out, markets are very predictive. There's reasons to think that sports betting markets are more predictive than, say, financial markets, because in sports betting markets, <clears throat> there's nothing illegal about trading on inside information. Obviously, it's illegal to uh, trade on a fixed match. But there's nothing illegal about trading on information that only you have. Uh, so we would, and, and that one person who has the information can fully determine price if they want to. So there's reason to expect that these markets are even more efficient. The political betting markets would fall under that. Um, in 2016, the political betting markets, even at this stage, were much bigger th than they are now. Uh, and there was reason to expect that maybe political betting markets would be the next thing and they would get bigger and bigger and more efficient. But this year, they seem to be kind of small, uh, <clears throat> which I think explains uh, some of their apparent inefficiency. Yeah, and I, I don't know why that is exactly. I mean, look, these markets have had... Um, some high profile misses, certainly, right? I don't know if it's hurt the reputation or what, right? I mean, if anything, if you were a trader, you might say these markets are stupid, therefore I'm more likely to participate, right? Um, you know, certainly Brexit, um, where all the UK bookmakers had um, had odds overwhelmingly against Brexit occurring, even though the polls basically showed it tied. Um, you know, that was not a terribly brilliant performance for the betting markets, some other kind of European elections, right? Um, you know, I think conversely in the French election, they had like Marie Le Pen priced way too high, I think is kind of a counter reaction. Um, you know, the markets were in the view of 538 model a little bit low on Trump, although the markets were kind of at least within the right order of magnitude, so to speak. Right. They had Trump at, um, I think, 15 to 18 percent on election day to win. We had him at 29 percent. Um, I think the average reporter at The New York Times had him at, you know, if you ask them to estimate, probably have them at 5%. And I think if you look at other models, some models had them as low as, as 1%. Um, you know, that is one thing about um, political modeling in general is like, I guess this is true of other domains as well. Um, but it's way easier to have a really dumb and bad model in politics. Um, you know, in part because like, first of all, American elections are complicated 
in that you have a bunch of contests taking place all together, right? So you have in the congressional elections, you have 435 House races plus roughly 35 Senate races that take place on the same day every year. And all those races are correlated. Um, in the Electoral College, you have people say it's 50 separate contests. It's not really. It's it's one contest that manifests itself in 50 states in the District of Columbia, and errors in the forecast are correlated. So one reason why 538 had Trump at 29 or 30 percent and not at 2 percent is because um, it was not a surprise that Wisconsin and Michigan, Pennsylvania all slipped away from Clinton because those are all kind of like the same um, types of states, right? white working class voters in those states, Midwestern states. Um, there's nothing magic that happens when you cross the state line from Wisconsin to Michigan, except people root for a different football team. Um, and so therefore, if you have the actual structure encoded correctly, where you understand that errors in the forecast are correlated, that's the big reason why um, why Trump winning was not such an upset, right? If people say, well, you know, he'd have to win this state where he's down three points, this state where he's down two, and this state where he's down three, maybe he'll win one of them. But, but you know, you flip the coin three times and we have to come up heads all three times. Like, no, it's exactly the wrong way to think about it, right? It's like you flip a coin that like has one toss basically, and you have three manifestations that are a result of that toss. So as, a, as an outsider to political prediction, <clears throat> one, one difference that I notice um, is that if you're talking about, say, the NBA finals, people are trying to come up with their best estimates that the Raptors win, and they're not emotional about it. They might be wrong in their probability assessments, yeah. but they're just trying to come up with a probability assessment. Whereas in politics, um, I think if you're involved in political prediction, there's no space for emotion or what you want to happen. But I noticed that in that world in general, there's a lot of emotion and it seems to uh, flavor both the modeling and the discussion. No, for sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, the biggest advantage to 538 or to me of having a model is that like it kind of serves as um, protection for when you get yourself emotionally invested in the election, right? Um, you know, one thing about our politics models is kind of once we release it, in the summer, we don't make subjective adjustments to it, right? It says what it says. Um, and, you know, I'll make one exception. In the first week or two after we release it, then we always kind of learn things about how it might be behaving like in a in a buggy way, right? So it's kind of like, um, you know, the rule if you drop food on the floor, you can like you have three seconds to pick it up and eat it, right? It's kind of like if we drop a model, we'll give ourselves um, a couple of days or maybe, maybe a week or two where it's kind of in beta mode. And we'll make fixes to it because no matter how much you like whiteboard a model or obviously backtest, then um, there are always things you learn when it's performing on on new data in real time. Um, but we're very strict in the politics side about like, you know, if we think it's doing something wrong, um, then we will keep a note of that and then change it next time around. Um, because, you know, people do get very invested and emotional in politics. It's not just a matter of like rooting for um rooting for a candidate you might prefer. There are other types of biases too, right? If you kind of um, bought into a certain narrative early on, right? If you had been someone that early on thought, oh, I really don't think Elizabeth Warren has any shot or whatever, right? Um, well, that might color your perception of the rest of the campaign potentially, and that might make you emotionally like tilted a little bit if she starts to do well. Um, you know, you might have interest in, I don't know, maybe you have 
economic interest in one candidate. Oh, that's maybe more rational, right? One candidate doing well for your tax bracket or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think kind of politics um, um, kind of fries people's brains a lot. And people are um, are kind of so used to um, to making arguments in a case where they're trying to be adversarial about it, right? Where you're not trying to like present the most objective case. You're trying to um, present the most persuasive case. And those things are, are often different and even somewhat opposite, right? And so kind of just the, the types of, I don't know, right? Um, the types of thinking people use when they're covering politics. I think it's like you guys have read uh, Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow, right? Talks about like system one and system two and system one is kind of fast, reactive <clears throat> thinking, right? Um, which is necessary in your day-to-day -day life, right? If I'm riding a bike to the studio, then I'm just kind of totally in system one watching for cars and pedestrians doing stupid things, right? Um, and oftentimes the reactions in politics where Trump tweets something and you're like, oh my God, that's outrageous, right? It's a kind of system one reaction. And Trump in particular is trying to trigger, I think, um, system one reflexes about immigrants or whatever else, right? Um, whereas to cover an election campaign, you really need the opposite of that. You need system two, slower, more deliberate thinking. Um, you need to be very patient. Um, you need to like actually, um, like I don't think you actually need to be a contrarian, but you need to like learn to um, deeply, deeply discount the conventional wisdom almost to zero. Um, and it's kind of hard for most people to do intuitively. I mean, notwithstanding the fact that like, if most people believe something, then Cicely, you're probably one of the people who believes it, right? Um, so, you know, I can kind of tell when I really kind of, not just for betting purposes, we often, you know, I, we cover the campaign, we have a podcast about it, we have, um, you know, tweet about it, we write articles about it, right? So I can tell like when, um, when you kind of really pick up on like a under-examined piece of the conventional wisdom, a kind of assumption that's baked in that people, um, that people aren't even aware that they're bringing an assumption to the table, right? The ones that really bother people are the ones where you probably actually have the most insight, right? Because um, of the unexamined premises that people have. Um, yeah. Now, I'm curious, in this in this election, we talked about how the, the betting markets seem to be somewhat dead, uh, but the financial markets are starting to really wake up to the election. Is there... Is there any way to uh, bring in financial market behavior into political prediction? Because there are some sectors that would obviously be hit harder, like uh, biotechnology and maybe the relative performance of biotech rel to the index might tell you something about the, the election probabilities. Yeah, classically, um, healthcare stocks or defense stocks. I mean, you know, one thing we um, <clears throat> have always thought about doing and never done, but yeah, could you create like a basket of, of stocks basically um, where they indicate the market sentiment about the election? Um, I mean, you could do it empirically, like kind of retrospectively say, okay, well, um, which commodities or which equities were most correlated with movement in political betting markets or the 538 forecast or whatever else? I'm sure you could kind of back out something, but, but yeah, I mean, it's a cool project for someone, a free idea for someone is like, you know, figure out some way to figure out which stocks are most sensitive to um, to the election because that's where the real money would be made or lost, right? It's partly why people are like, oh my gosh, you know, people are gambling thousands of dollars on Predict It. It's like, okay, like, <laughs> I'm sorry, but like, that's not very much money. Um, and you would risk millions or tens of millions of dollars if you were like a, a hedge fund and you thought you actually had like a, a you know, value add, add prediction, even though, I mean, yeah, there's some 
noise you're picking up if you're investing in um, uh, health care related stocks or defense related stocks, the two kind of classic ones, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it seems sometimes like those um, those stocks should be more sensitive to like actually who would win Congress and and not the presidency, right? Because yeah, Elizabeth, that's definitely Elizabeth a Warren with the, with the Republican Senate, probably not going to get Medicare for all, probably not even a public option, right? Elizabeth Warren, a big Democratic wave year where they went up with 54 Senate seats, then, oh, actually, that's a possibility or something maybe, um, you know, halfway to that at least. Um, and so um, so that's where you probably would want to be, be focused. Yeah, it was interesting in podcast two, I chatted with Jason Strasser, who's a a poker legend who went on to run an options fund. And he was talking about how a big project in 2016 was looking at uh, which sectors would, would do well in the event of, uh, of an election and then comparing it to the implied probabilities in the option markets and taking positions there. So as the, as the election got closer, you could look at not only the relative performance of stocks, but also what, what options were telling you in terms of the, implied probabilities. Um, with betting markets, you mentioned that it is a relatively trivial amount of money at play. There there was also, um, in 2012, I think, some fairly well-founded accusations that there was tampering in the betting markets. Because if you think about the amount that's spent yep. on campaigns, you have you have tens of billions of dollars spent on the campaigns, and, and it takes very little to move the election. Uh, probabilities in betting markets. And since people are citing them in every article, it might make sense. Yeah, to... it's, it's relatively cheap, right? And also, if you like, let's say that, um, let's say that the real price for Romney should have been um, 25% and you bid that up to 40% to create an error that's a toss up, right? You're only losing 15% of that bet, right? You're going to be, you're not that mispriced. Um, and so, you know, you take 15% of whatever you spend and like compared to how much money campaign spend then um then it's not that much money that you're really investing because the markets aren't that aren't that um just the volumes aren't that impressive yeah and there's also there's also the possibility that someone uh was manipulating that price to bet on the side or something there, yeah. there that sort of thing might happen in elections um but you i mean you do get like a lot of people who are um and I like say this in the like kindest possible way to the um, listeners of this podcast, right? But like, but like, building good election models is hard. Um, so is building good sports models. So is playing poker well, right? But like, um, you know, there are a lot of dabblers in political prediction that I think probably um, probably overestimate their abilities a little bit, especially when those abilities like kind of um, correlate with what they their personal political preferences are you know um which is kind of a good gut check in the long run is you know um you know if i like i'm not going to reveal kind of what my personal price would be on every democratic candidate right but if i have my prices they're like not very well correlated with who i would actually prefer to see win the election sure. right and because you have 17 candidates this time you could actually kind of have like a sufficient sample to see like you know um there are people i would love to see do well that i think are not going to come close to winning and people that I think have a good chance I would not want to vote for personally. Um, so, you know, just kind of being aware of, of that and, um, 
And whenever you do kind of have a prediction that kind of matches your, I mean, again, I think like, I feel like sports fans probably would do a better job of this, right? If you're a New York Knicks fan and you think the Knicks are going to win 43 games when the models say 24 or whatever, then you probably at some level kind of the light clicks on and you're like, oh, okay, maybe I should check myself a little bit. But for some reason, I think um, people aren't really kind of, I mean, the whole notion of like kind of cognitive bias and all that literature from like behavioral economics for for many years, right? Um, it feels like um, traders and financial markets are reasonably well acquainted with that, right? Um, I don't know about sports betters. I think probably um, like in some ways sports is so kind of pure and clean and like sort of, you know, a little bit less challenging from a modeling standpoint. Maybe you don't encounter that as much. Um, but in politics, it feels like people are not very well kind of acquainted with, um, with you know, things as simple as as confirmation bias. I mean, half the time, if you just like actually like look at an average of polls instead of just one poll um, or cherry picking a few polls, even worse, right? Then like, then like your kind of baseline story of the election is often way different than kind of what you would read um read in the New York times or, or hear another podcast. And like, that's the simplest possible mathematical, mathematical technique is just like to add a bunch of numbers together and then divide them to get an average. Right. Um, and even that can actually leave you pretty removed from what the, what the conventional wisdom is about campaigns sometimes. Well, you were pointing out recently that, uh, that Budacek has some momentum in the media narrative. And part of it is, it seems uh, from the outside perspective that if a poll comes out that shows him doing particularly well because people want him to do well, they'll isolate that poll and not look yeah. at the average. Yeah. I mean, um, and we have, you know, typically a typical week, seven or eight national polls come out. And so through variance alone, you're going to have um, going to have polls where he's up five points, polls where he's down three points. And, and there's fairly, Blatant. I don't know if it's conscious or not. That's always a different question, right? But there's kind of fairly blatant cherry picking in terms of which polls tend to get more attention, right? Um, and by the way, it's not just that there's a bias toward particular candidates or toward a particular narrative. It's also that, like there is a bias toward um, bias toward drama um, because that's what sells in in political news, right? Um, like you said earlier, you have this kind of long. Um, period where not that much happens in campaigns, right? And then it's not like an NBA season where teams play games every second or third day, right? It's, um, you know, uh, all the voting takes place. Although in primary, it's a little bit different. Once the voting starts, you do have like 30 different election dates. But like, but, you know, there is a very long buildup relative to the actual voting period itself. Um, and so it gets tedious and boring. Um, there has not been that much that's happened in the Democratic campaign this year. And so... So kind of people literally just kind of um, kind of halfway make stuff up, right? I mean, like I'm trying to be conscious of my language. I like don't get that quoted like out of context, right? But there is like, there is some degree to which like um, the big purveyors of the conventional wisdom, you know, people are kind of on at the Times and the Post and, and the networks and 538 owned by ABC News, right? There is an extent to which like, um, I mean, I used to work at the, at the times there is an extent to which like they're like well we are kind of interpreting these events for america and kind of drafting the narrative and what's kind of some what's a clever angle 
that we can have and what's kind of what do people that we talk to kind of rich donors or democratic insiders what do they think right and like um you know i mean it's kind of like it's a relatively small industry i guess is what i what i'm saying right um and i've been in rooms literally where like you know we're covering a debate and you're in the same like usually a college gymnasium is usually what happens it's held at a college and you're all in like the um basketball uh practice facility or something right and you're kind of all watching the debate together on these big screens and everyone's like on twitter and kind of you know looking over one of their shoulders so like like literally like you can see the financial convention wisdom formulating and it's not as robust as financial markets where you have many different people coming at it from many different angles which is not to say that financial markets don't have all types of problems i'm sure um but the potential for groupthink is is very very high but also you've set out 538 as trying to be objective about things um other other places have mixed motives and wouldn't necessarily try to deny that so no one in the in the media business, yeah, they have to come up with a, a different story each day, whatever is going to draw the eyeballs. So yeah. the, the poll that stands out, it's not surprising that they might gravitate there. No, I mean, and they have fairly explicit. You're right. I mean, they, um, you know, I think in part because um, elections have always been taken um, in some ways not that seriously by newsrooms, right? It's kind of like, well, here's where we have fun and... Um, and the real work we do is in covering like the white house or covering national security. Right. Um, and as a result, the coverage, I think the coverage of the white house is way better than coverage of elections. Um, because kind of seen as those kind of fun and games and maybe we'll dabble at prediction a little bit and maybe not. And people just want to know kind of what the insiders are saying. And, and, um, and so five thirty eight. Where, you know, and it's important to say, like, I kind of came into um, to political forecasting as like as like uh, the kind of third thing that I did. Right. Where I built sports models before I ever built political models. Um, and you were and anonymous played, at first. Was anonymous at first. Right. And I played poker before I ever built political models. And so those are two things that I guess we'll talk about later, but like also kind of train your mathematical intuition in certain ways. And so so you come into politics and you're like, OK, actually kind of I think I know what it means, like actually try to be. um try to be objective or, or, you know, I know what it means to like, uh, what group think is and, and I know, you know, how to avoid it. And, and I thought, you know, when I first found it 538, I thought, boy, political coverage is really quite unsophisticated, um, or election coverage, I should say. I don't want to like demean all politics coverage, um, or all news coverage, certainly, but like, but election coverage was not very sophisticated, uh, People would believe in things very firmly that had extremely little evidence behind them. And, and I think it probably has improved a little bit, um, but but it still leaves a, a lot to be desired. But by being anonymous, there was a focus on process. And that's how you gained your initial following by convincing others of your process. Whereas uh, the biases that maybe newcomers at political prediction might have now could relate to the fact that they're floating their early predictions to social media and getting feedback based on that, which is it was, not ideal for developing process. Yeah, look, it was a good time in um, in media where like the barriers to entry were relatively low, right? And you could kind of have like thoughtful conversations on your on your blog, right? Um, 
you didn't have the kind of quick reaction to things like you do on social media now. And so there was an opportunity to like actually kind of um, develop what became the 538 model, um, like almost in like a interactive way with the with the readers of the blog over the course of the kind of spring and summer in 2008, um, where you would start out with, I mean, this is probably a basic modeling technique, right? You start out with like kind of a minimum viable product and then you kind of add you add wrinkles to it. And so, yeah, the first version of it in 2008 kind of was being built as we were, as we went up until, um, I don't know when, probably by July or so by the conventions, we had things pretty well locked in. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was kind of a unique time. And I think being anonymous was, was partly like, first of all, I thought like, um, oh, people don't really want, um, if you're known for sports, then people don't really want to intermingle sports and politics, which is kind of precedes the whole stick to sports conversation by, by many years, turns out that, that that there is like a lot of. I mean, first of all, like there are political events in sports, like you know, Daryl Morey in China or whatnot, um, or the NCAA tournament, uh, and the, or the NCAA period, right? And how they treat players and don't pay players, but like, but also like there is overlap between those things, um, and I wanted to avoid that. But also, yeah, I mean, you know, I um, I inherently get suspicious when. Um, when someone who has an expertise in one domain um, suddenly transfers to a new domain and is treated as kind of like a a wizard or whatever, um, because I believe that um, that good prediction requires quite a bit of um, of domain knowledge, um, and you have to like actually kind of understand the system and be a fan so to speak of the system. And so, you know, um, understand what the rules are. I mean, there's just so many decisions you make when you're building a model, so many kind of, um, um, conscious and unconscious decisions about like which variables to include or which things when you're debugging something, right. Um, which things kind of catch your eye as being implausible and wrong and which things don't, well, you probably need some intuition about the underlying dynamics based on your awareness of like the history of the system that you're studying or the structure of the system that you're studying. And so, um, so, you know, so I didn't want to be like, Oh, here's a, here's a baseball guy or a sports guy. Who's now kind of getting into, into politics. I want to kind of build it out a little bit more, um, on its own. And then there got to be momentum for it where like they were, um, you know, I went by the name Poblano, which is a chili pepper. And like, I got like reporters from like Newsweek and stuff. You're like, we want to write about this model. Right. And can you like out yourself? I eventually did. Um, mm -hmm. But um, but it was anonymous for the first few months, at least. So this this election uh, is unique. Speaking of needing some institutional institutional knowledge, uh, this election is unique because of the impeachment proceedings, the incoming yeah. <laughs> uh, impeachment, and the betting markets currently have that as uh, a two and a half to one favor to happen. Uh, impeachment. Now it's not. It's not likely that it will be confirmed by the Senate, but it's it's likely that that uh, that drama has quite a quite a way to go. Yeah, I think if anything on impeachment and not removal, I think if anything, the markets are 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 priced too low on impeachment. Where what is it, like seventy five percent or something to an? I mean, um, you know, I, I saw that it was a that it was a little bit better than a two and a half to one favorite to happen. Yeah, I mean. So a majority of Democrats, or a, rather a almost all Democrats, a majority of the overall House, by some margin is on record already as saying we support the impeachment process. 
nothing that's happened in the impeachment process would, I think, have made any of those Democrats less likely to support impeachment itself, um, where public opinion on impeachment has shifted, where um, Trump's approval rating, people were worried about um, a backlash and said Trump's overall approval rating is is maybe down a point or two. He's acting um, very kind of erratically. Some people say might say irrationally. Um, clearly, from the reporting and from his behavior, Trump does not want impeachment. He does not want to be like a martyr or something. He does not seem to intuitively think it would help him win re-election. Um, and the facts, I think, are have been fairly damaging, um, including based on stuff that the White House itself has released. And so, um, so it's hard to imagine, like, given that Democrats all, you already had a majority for the impeachment process, and given that that process has probably been like a, you know, an eight out of 10 for them from the best possible version for Democrats, the worst possible version so far. Um, it's hard to see how they could kind of put the genie back in the bottle and not impeach him at this point. Right. Um, now I should say those markets, you don't get paid out on impeachment. If Trump were to resign, um, before the impeachment process takes place, like Nixon did. Um, and yeah, so therefore so that, that therefore market that is, like, is yeah. uh, <clears throat> Priced at uh, 23% on Betfair, uh, 23% that Trump leaves before the end of the first term, which as a technical matter, if he dies before the end of the first term, just from being old, like, I don't know what that means. I but... think that, I think the, uh, it's a push if he dies. So okay. 20% is that he um, um, resigns Uh or is removed from office. Or there's a third way, which is if the 25th Amendment is invoked, you can say the president is not fit for office and can be removed that way as well. So that's a fairly high probability, 23%, that he leaves before the end of the first term. Um, and the the probability that he is the next president, 41.7%. Then your your uh, Warren is at twenty percent. Biden is at eleven point nine. Uh, Sanders is at six point one. That sort of rounds out the discussion. So, um, does that number for Trump forty forty one point seven percent sound reasonable? It sounds reasonable. Yeah, um, and I think the twenty three percent sounds reasonable too, right? Um, you know, look. I don't know how you go about like actually building a, a model of impeachment. There's like not really a lot of data. If you want to be technical, there've been, depending on how you count, um, three or four presidents who have gotten this far with impeachment before. And one of them, Nixon did resign the office. And so if you want like a very crude prior, um, then, you know, then, Hey, maybe one out of three, one out of four isn't crazy. Um, that's not that far from, from where it's priced. Obviously the big thing that would make removal less likely is that there is a very high degree of partisanship so far. Republican voters have stuck behind Trump for a, um, for a near universal to near universal degree. Republican members of Congress have, um, have mostly stuck behind Trump, although there's been more dissent lately on Syria to some extent on Ukraine, um, but, you know, you need a fairly conservative Republican senator to vote to remove Trump from office at the risk of a big backlash from the base um, to have two thirds of the Senate 
vote to remove and 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 convict Trump. Um, so that's you know a pretty serious threshold. On the other hand, right, you know, uh, the underlying conduct is um, certainly I think I mean compared to like Monica Lewinsky or something, um, and frankly, as compared to to Watergate, I mean, in some sense, um, it's now very similar to Watergate in the sense you're trying to like use questionable means to kind of dig up dirt on one of your opponents, right? It's not that far removed from 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 Watergate necessarily, right? And so the underlying conduct, I think, probably meets the threshold of being impeachable. To me, as a layperson, I'm not a constitutional scholar, right? Um, but, you know, it seemed like that would be kind of within a common sense definition of, of the types of things that the framers would have been worried about. Um, and so, so I don't know, maybe you kind of default to this like naive prior where when this process gets this far, then, then you never know. And there are also all types of like kind of nonlinearities, right? It's not going to be, it's not very likely that you're going to have um, exactly 67 senators vote to vote to remove him, right? Either the dam holds and maybe you have Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Lamar Alexander, who's retiring, and maybe you'd have, you know, almost all the Democrats plus three or four Republicans vote to remove him as one equilibrium, right? The other equilibrium is where you have like 85 Republicans vote to, or 85 senators vote to remove him. And McConnell in particular, the Senate Majority Leader, says, you know what, um, as bad as it's going to be, we need to get my members reelected. Um, by the way, the thing is... Um, if Trump is removed, you still get a GOP president, right? And for a lot of um, members of Congress, Mike Pence would be a better president than Donald Trump if you're a kind of traditional conservative. Um, so, you know, if Republicans either kind of in a personal way um, were to say, you know what, I am tired of going on TV and, and having my legs cut out from under me because the White House's defense strategy is not very is not very good, that I think probably affects people like on a kind of quality of life emotional level but the more pertinent one is that if they were to conclude at some point that electorally um um it's better to let go of trump than um than to support him that could flip in a hurry right like let's say that his approval rating um like right now i mean we haven't talked about, about conditional him being the nominee what his chances are right but probably somewhere in the ballpark of of 50 50 is in the ballpark right um let's say though that Three months from now, because of impeachment, Trump's approval rating has fallen from from forty one percent or forty two percent where it is now to like thirty four percent. At that point, he might be kind of well and truly fucked in terms of winning re-election. I mean, maybe not quite because you know thirty four percent in February doesn't necessarily mean anything about about November, right? But you know, there are scenarios where this kind of unfolds badly, and he becomes a big underdog. Um, for re-election, let's say, let's say, you know, let's say you get to a point where he's more than like a three to one underdog or something, right? And also there's a decent chance that if he loses, it's going to be by a landslide margin, which almost inevitably um, landslides create problems for every Republican running for Senate and House and governor and, and mayor and everything else, right? Um, you know, unless they really, really kind of separate themselves off from Trump. And so, so there could be an inflection point where things tip in a hurry. Um, does that mean that like 23% is the right price? I mean, I don't know. It's not 50%. I know that much, right? I mean, you can always do these gut checks, right? Would I bet even money on Trump not being president by election day yet next year? No, I would not bet even money on that, right? Um, 
you know, it's probably not 20 to 1, right? I would love to bet um, 20 to 1 or 10 to 1 on Trump not being president a year from now. So somewhere between, you know, somewhere between 10% and 40% are like, you know, not crazy estimates. I probably tend to the lower end of that range, but like, but I wow. know. All right. That's a news flash. But people need to be recognized that like, if the whole thing is people underestimate uncertainty, which is, you know, a very, very broad prior to impose on people, but like, it's, you know, um, if you underestimate uncertainty, then there is downside risk and, and, um, Downside risk below a certain threshold could trigger Republicans to say, hey, look, it's rational for me now to support removing my president um, um, and trying to cut my loss because I'm going to get Mike Pence for a year. And then I get, you know, I'll take my chances with uh, with the election if I think I was going to be in really bad shape otherwise. And so you're not that far from, um, I don't know. Right. Um, and there are also some things like. Let's say that he wouldn't get removed for Ukraine conduct. Um what if there are other stuff that comes up? What if he was, what if U.S. policy toward Syria and Turkey was influenced by, um, by personal political um, or financial motives for Trump? And that comes out later on, right? Um, you know, I mean, the news has unfolded at like a, a kind of very breakneck pace. And, you know, I'm aware that usually um, things kind of revert to the mean, and if you're listening to this podcast, we're taping it, what is it? It's October 24th or whatever. Yes. You know, if you're listening to this on archive in in February, it might sound ridiculous because it's like, well, you know, that Ukraine stuff was pretty bad, but all the major revelations were out by by November. And then, of course, Democrats voted to remove or impeach him in the House, but didn't get very far in the Senate. And this all seems stupid now, right? But like, but there is this kind of possibility that like actually things keep accelerating and and getting crazier, right? Um one mechanism for that is that um, is that you have a distressed White House. Um, the people who were the um, the most talented political operatives um, probably left left the White House earlier in the administration, um, and so you kind of have like um, like anything, right? Like a, a, you know, in a military battle, if like the leadership of of um, you know whatever particular battalion. Is decimated and that can create problems down the road right and you know kind of every time when like one of the quote-unquote adults in the room john kelly or whomever would leave the leave the white house then you would kind of say to yourself okay well sooner or later this is going to cause problems because you have people who are not really top-line professionals working in very very major jobs in the white house and cabinet positions and and um and everything else right and um and they drink the Kool-Aid a lot with respect to Trump or they're kind of careerists who are like, you know, Rudy Giuliani or something who was like cycling through very weird opportunities, going through, you know, weird stuff in his personal life. And I don't know. Right. But you're not getting like the top shelf talent in the White House. And that affects um, both um, both the things that they might. I mean, first of all, their ability to like actually prevent Trump from like doing things that are self-destructive and then the kind of communication strategy later on i think i mean i think you know through all the reporting i've read people have given up any hope of kind of really kind of containing and controlling trump um were you here in the kind of first year where you know <clears throat> gary Cohn would like intercept something in his inbox and like tear it up or something right? you hear these stories about like the um i don't want to use the term deep stakes it's like too flip right but you would kind of see more signs of resistance within the bureaucracy to trump 
that probably prevented him um, from from doing stupid things, right? Even just saying, hey, look, boss, um, you know, can you sleep on it? I mean, that works sometimes. It's a basic technique of management, right? If I'm doing something at 538 and my editors think it's a dumb idea, right, they'll say, let's just, uh, I'm tired. Let's talk about this tomorrow. I'm sure we'll end up supporting, but let's, let's just bring it back tomorrow, right? And then usually you kind of like, you're thinking more clearly the next day and then you don't do something. But like, but those kind of checks and balances, I think, are, are largely, um, are largely kind of removed from, um, from the White House. And we would think that the nature of the discovery process would lead to new things coming out. I mean, it's got to be uh, a brutal discovery process that's underway. So you would think that yeah. new things are coming out. Now, um, <clears throat> over the course of these impeachment proceedings, uh, Warren has <clears throat> ascended relative to Biden. Uh, is this is this because it's quite bad for for Biden? So I don't think she actually has ascended relative to Biden. I think he's ascended relative to everyone else. Um, where Biden's been fairly steady at around thirty percent in the polls, he may have lost some steam um, in Iowa. Actually, one bias I think affects the prediction markets is like the fact that like so Biden's constituency is older Democrats, moderates, African Americans. Non-college Democrats. Um, these are like not the most um, kind of trendy coastal urban elites um, that the media sometimes hears more from, right? Um, I can guarantee you that like um, there are far more people in um, in newsrooms um, who would vote for Elizabeth Warren than Joe Biden because they're younger, they're college educated. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. She's got a very kind of nerdy, kind of wonky appeal. Um, so as a result, I think like Biden's candidacy has been kind of um, discounted, um, even though in some ways it's been fairly resilient in the same way that Trump sort of was in the Republican primaries in in twenty sixteen. Um, you know, I would still uh, bet against Biden at even money. I think I probably. Um, I don't know. I'd probably take Warren over him. I had to get one pick only, but I think it's pretty close. Um, and when you see Warren given double a chance at predicted or whatever is Biden, like although it's closed a lot as we're taping this in recent days, like that seems like a little bit um irrational to me. But it's not because I'm like bearish on Warren per se. It's more that like I think people um you know, have it in mind that, hey, it's kind of a long process and they recall the examples of people kind of coming back and, and the surprises that occurred in the past. Um, there actually aren't as many kind of big upsets as people think and they often involve candidates who are in like, who are in like decent but not great position, right? Um, like like uh, Obama at this stage. Yeah. Uh, and Buttigieg would seem like a similar candidate in a way. Yeah, I mean, so Buttigieg and, and Bernie... Um, are the two where, I mean, you know, it's way different to be if you're burning at 15% than at, at 5% or 2%, right? Um, like Cory Booker or something is. 15% is not great, especially if you're a candidate who got 43% last time and are really well known. Um, but that's within the realm of where candidates have come back from that type of range before and won nominations on, on multiple occasions, right? Um, with Mayor Pete, um, 
he's not doing that well in national polls, but he is at about 15% in Iowa. And if you win Iowa, then, um, okay, it's a game changer. And so, so those are the, you know, so they're really, I think like, um, three tiers, right? Tier one is, um, is Biden and Warren. Tier two is Bernie and Mayor Pete. I probably have Bernie a little bit ahead. Um, but depends on the importance of Iowa versus national polls. Um, and then tier three is everyone else. So you can probably distinguish between like, you know, all the everyone else's, they're probably some that like are a little bit more viable, you know, Harris or Booker or Klobuchar versus, um, versus, you know, Michael Bennett or something might be in tier four. Um, but I think right now it kind of sorts itself pretty cleanly into those, into those tiers in terms of likelihood of winning the nomination. So to summarize before we move on to sports, it sounds like selling Trump at 41.7%, buying Biden. Well, I'm not sure. I Because I haven't waited on like the whole conditional on his making the, um, being the nominee, right? I mean, I, I probably, I haven't devoted enough bandwidth to kind of really, really deeply thinking about the general election stuff, right? So probably a, a hold on, um, a hold on most general election related activity. Fair to say that you're buying Pence at 1.7%? Probably. Yeah. Or Haley. I know what Haley's priced at or, or, um, but yeah, I think there's more than a 1.7% chance that, that in January, um, 20, what the hell year is it? 2021 that Mike Pence would be president, that he would be the Republican nominee. And I mean, it's not that crazy, right? Like if you, if, if there's a 23% chance, I mean, that seems like a very blatant mispricing in fact, right? If there's a 23% chance that Trump will not be president by election day next year, that means Mike Pence would be, and he presumably would also be like the, um, be the nominee, right? And although I think he'd probably be an underdog, maybe a fairly bad underdog in a case where things have gotten so bad that Trump was removed from office or resigned, um, you know, crazy things happen and maybe he would have a whatever chance. And so that seems like it's, it's definitely mispriced. And it also sounds like you're short Warren at 20%. To be president, I think I'm not. Sh- I'm probably short. Um, I'm probably long Biden mm-hmm. on the Democrats. I mean Warren. Um, so all the all the random characters you give. A, I I probably be short people. most of the random people. Um, um, Warren, I think had been overpriced, but there's been a big correction that occurred over the past couple of days to drive her down to something which is, um, which is more rational and she's a pretty good candidate in some ways, right? She does have a lot, you know, you could make a good case for why she would win the nomination. Um, so I, I don't think I'm actually short Warren necessarily. I think I'm, I'm long Biden and short, um, short the field, at least as a group. So to move on to sports analytics and poker, I want to talk about your new basketball model a little bit, Raptor. Um, I don't know why it's named Raptor. I assume it might have to do with your one legal sports bet of last year, <laughs> as far as I know. Is um, that true that is it true that you only placed one sports bet last year? True or false? Uh that's true. Yeah. True. Um and it was it was actually a, a large bet bets by on, your standards. Yeah. And by my standards. Yeah. And it was legal in the state of New Jersey. Went to Hoboken, got a delicious Cuban sandwich, um, and made a various Bets related to the Raptors in the NBA uh, finals. And you believe very strongly in this bet. I believe enough to. Based on your, based on your projected probabilities versus the market, market probabilities. It was based on, um, and this is, so the version of the model, model we had last year was a different 
model called Carmelo, but that had the NBA finals as a as a toss up roughly, whereas the Warriors were like what were they? They were like minus two thirty or something, right? So it was a big I think disparity. It's even steeper, but I'm I'm yeah. not sure exactly. Um but no, this kind of stemmed from like um so obviously whenever you have like a a model that is way different than the consensus, then um that can be a good way to make money or a good way to lose money, right? You don't automatically go and say, okay, um, my forecast is radically different than the market price, therefore I'm going to invest whatever percent of my um, stake in, in this bet, right? Um, you know, uh, that's like not really a smart idea, right? You want to try to understand why you're priced differently than the market and, and how much you believe in that. Um, and for, um, for the NBA finals, I mean, you know, I watch a fair amount of basketball and the Raptors played really freaking well. I mean, they beat Milwaukee, which is a, a very good team, probably as good a team as Golden State was last year. Um, Kawhi Leonard is a fantastic player. I mean, there's just like a combination of things, right? Um, the Raptors had not really been at full strength for most of the regular season because Kawhi Leonard had, um, undergone, Load management for 20 games, not played in 20 games. Kyle Lowry had missed 12 games. Mark Gasol um, was acquired only two-thirds of the way through the season at the trade deadline um, when that five-man Raptor lineup had played um, in a small sample size, but they were extremely effective, right? Um, so that's one thing, right? And then when, like, you know, when you, like, listen to, like, basketball podcasts that I like, you know, Zach Lowe or whatever, um, the people who I really trust to like actually, um, actually understand basketball and have like correct opinions about basketball, like they were saying this series is very competitive. Yeah, Golden State's probably a favorite, but like I could see it going either way. You know, kind of conversely, when like um, you would listen to the kind of the next tier down of conversations about the NBA Finals, right? Like I, um, you know, I really like uh, the Bill Simmons podcast. Right, I like Bill Simmons in general. Was kind of an inspiration for Five Thirty Eight with Grantland, whatever else, right? Um, but you know, if Bill is saying one thing and Zach Lowe was saying the other thing, that's when I might be inclined to like um, to take the kind of Zach Lowe side of the bet, right? Because I think Bill represents in a very effective way kind of the voice of like the the um, average, very smart sports fan who is not like at a Zach Lowe level, you know what I mean? Um, and kind of believes a lot in narratives and like the kind of narrative about the Warriors was that, um, Hey, look, um, you know, Kevin Durant being injured is not a big as problem as you think because, um, because they played really well. Actually, I forgot what the record was. Like they had some very high win rate. Um, I think like 33 and one or 34 and one in their last like 35 games with, um, with uh, Steph Curry playing, but Kevin Durant not playing, right? And that number, which kept getting quoted over and over, I think was like kind of why people were so bullish on um, on the Warriors because like that seemed like a really sophisticated point, right? Sure, on the surface, you might think that these teams are both really good and that um, the Raptors, by the way, had home court advantage um, and that the fact that one of the better players in the NBA is injured for the series, that might tip it to, toward being um, a toss-up, if not favoring... Um, Toronto a little bit, but people were kind of like discounting um, the impact of the Durant injury. I think for um, you know somewhat 
somewhat wrong reasons, right? And the reasons are that, like, actually, like, this data about kind of who performs well, um, you know, which kind of lineup combinations perform well when a guy is on or off the court. I work with that data, and that data is, like, actually, like, like quite noisy. Um, it does tell you something, um, but if your prior is that Kevin Durant's a really great player, um, and then you have lineup-based data that suggests that, like, he doesn't have as much of an impact as you think, um, you should only kind of shift away from your prior by like by like twenty or twenty five percent, right? Um, which I guess is like very technical, but saying like oh, a lot of this kind of uncourt off court data takes like takes literally um, years to stabilize, right? It's quite noisy in the short term, and so um, so people are kind of like betting on that data um, in a way that it was weird because like a kind of high, it is like a highly sophisticated argument in some ways, but one that if you're like even more sophisticated than you know is like actually not as compelling as you would think um so you know in some sense because look whenever you're making a trade someone else has to have the other side of the trade right so i think kind of like it was like okay i think there's like a sophomoric series of arguments for golden state and people who are pretty smart but not zach Lowe, <laughs> right um or people who kind of I've gotten into advanced stats, but like actually never tried to create their own projection system. You know, those kind of medium sophistication, medium sophistication betters, I think, were mostly on the Warriors, um, which is means there's potentially like actually value on the Raptors, right? Because there are people who are smart enough to like think they can make money on the Warriors, and but are are not looking at as many, um, not looking at the data in quite the right way. So. Um... <clears throat> Explain, explain the Raptor projection system. I know um, you're trying to model better each player's individual projection, and I I assumed that your Raptors bet had something to do with the fact that the the five core players on the Raptors were so effective together, and it was more likely in the playoffs that they would they would be running that rotation closer to to optimal lineups. Um, give us, give us a quick rundown of, of the Raptor system. Um, so Raptor stands for, uh, all of our, um, sports algorithms are like named after something or someone, right? We've had one, we had Carmelo, um, was a previous NBA system. Um, we had Pakoda back in the day was our baseball system. Um, but Raptor, the acronym stands for robust algorithm using player tracking and on-court, off-court ratings, um, which is a mouthful, but it says that like, so there's a couple of things. One of which is like we are um, we are using new data from play by play logs and from um, from player tracking data from the NBA. Um, it's all the stuff that's available publicly, um, but we're using that data um, that has not been employed before in one of these publicly available metrics, right? So if you hear about like real plus minus or box score plus minus or whatever else, right? Um, or PER or PIPM, um, they're basically just using box score stats so traditional stuff like blocks steals rebounds um plus um data on lineup combinations um so who's on court and who's off court and how those teams and teammates play together um they're not using the kind of wealth of of other data that's now been publicly available for six years um that the nba has published or that third-party providers have published um this is this data is geographical in nature or geographical like um like where 
where people are taking shots and things like this. So like where we're... people are taking shots, kind of who holds the ball for how long, um, who the nearest defender is on any given shot is an important metric. Um, so like the Kirk Goldberry type data where it's who's Yeah, taking... where, you know, which shot, shots are assisted. Um, if you have a bunch of assisted field goals, that means you create less offense for yourself. Um, what types of rebounds do you get, right? If you get a um, a defensive rebound after a missed free throw, well, the defense recovers that ball 90% of the time anyway. It's not that valuable versus a rebound on um, like a floater or something, actually. That's a fairly high offensive rebound rate, right? So it's like a lot of things that like make a lot of basketball sense, we think. Um but just kind of no one publicly had been had been um, willing to take the effort to kind of incorporate this into like a into um, into I guess you'd call it like a super stat or whatever. Um, and by super stat, I mean like so each player gets one rating, actually two ratings, an offensive rating and a defensive rating, which is how many points you contribute to the offense per 100 possessions or contributes to the defense. Um, there are inherently limitations to that approach. So you're kind of saying, OK, I am going to. Um, Assume each player is an individual and you can mix them together and there are no interaction effects to worry about really, right? Um, you know, that obviously is a big simplification um, and misses, you know, the classic versus like, what about the interaction between, um, between uh, you know, John Stockton or Carl Malone or whatever, right? Aren't they more than some of their parts? What about coaching and what about, um, what about usage and stuff like that? So it's making some simplifications but like but it comes a lot closer to like actually reflecting um how uh how the kind of market of nba teams values players right um you know one thing that comes through in data at least in raptor is that players who create floor spacing so guys basically who are um who are threats to hit three-point shots um and therefore um attract defenders toward them well that means that everyone else is a little bit more open, right? That clearly has quite a bit of value. Um, and so indicators of floor spacing, of passing tend to be highly valued by by Raptor. Because um, again, if you have access to this like new modern data, it like, just kind of just emerges organically. And that kind of happens to match the way that, at least as I understand it, kind of smart kind of basketball observers watch the NBA today. Also corresponds with... Uh... The observed decisions of good coaches like Spolestra taking uh, Adebayo as his guy over. Yeah, so so one thing is like side. um a lot of these other kind of predecessors to Raptor would have to use minutes played as a proxy for things they did not understand about about what these guys were doing, right? Um and that meant that like there's big kind of unmeasured quantities involved. With Raptor, um Raptor doesn't use minutes played because you ga- get basically 97% of the way there without minutes played because like it actually captures certain types of defensive value, right? It captures, um, you know, rim defense, for example. Who is the nearest defender? If you're the center, Rudy Gobert or something, then um, then opponents, um, you know, shoot poorly against you and you also defend a lot of shots because you're everywhere. You're extremely effective post defender and that comes through kind of loud and clear in the data. Um, doesn't mean we capture everything. I mean, I think like... Um, you know, perimeter defense is still kind of a challenge. I think the NBA is actually working as we speak on um, on new metrics, with, which they're going to debut soon. That might be incorporated into Raptor, but like, but we definitely feel like we do a better job of of on offense, kind of capturing ball movement and shot creation and floor spacing, kind of the modern NBA offense. And then on defense, 
just kind of going beyond blocks and steals and rebounds, which is like all the stats people used to have and minutes played and fouls. Um, we think we've made considerable improvement in measuring defense. It tends to actually kind of correlate with guys like like Gobert and Marcus Smart or whatever who are regarded as good defenders around the league. It actually kind of matches up with um, with kind of reputational um, reputations of players quite well. So since we are under a time constraint, I want to move to the last subject of poker. Uh, <clears throat> one of my personal projects is to make your retirement from politics whenever that occurs <laughs> a, a year on the professional poker tour because I know... I know you might, you might be inclined to choose that anyway. So, uh, so after after the election for say 2021, what are what are your your poker plans? I know you're always involved in learning. You clearly enjoy game theory and its application to poker. Uh, so, where do you intend to go in terms of in terms of learning, and then also in terms of playing? So I was a limit hold'em donk or not a donk. I was actually like a fairly good relative to the era professional um for a period from like 2004 to 2006 um in fact it enabled me to kind of quit my consulting job um but i would play on party poker and poker stars mostly party poker um limit hold them ranging from um 15 30 up to 100 200 um occasionally a little higher but not consistently um a lot of six max shorthanded games right and so and i made um you know, not spectacular money, but a couple hundred thousand bucks um, over the period of a couple of years um, and supported myself primarily that way while I was starting to get into other things like like sports analytics. Um, so um, once Fire 38 took off and also, you know, kind of online poker was basically banned in the U.S. There are various catastrophic things that happened to it. Right? I actually kind of left um, pre-Black Friday. Right. But like so I have this period, I guess now it's like, um, you know, 13 years ago now, 15 years ago, I was kind of playing poker professionally and always been an interest of mine. Um, but kind of over the past year or so, kind of my interest has been like rekindled a little bit in a more serious way. Um, and so you've probably seen me kind of quizzing you about poker hands more often or kind of playing more. So I was trying like this spring, this summer um, to kind of get out and play poker roughly once every, um, once every four to six weeks, meaning go to like a, a tournament somewhere or go um go to atlantic city or philly or some casino on the east coast and play a little bit of cash um but you know i mean i spend a lot of time um watching poker videos and uh you know i've tried to use solvers i've tried to um you know i spend a lot of time kind of studying poker i kind of read poker books and the like actual playing part of it there's been less um but yeah the goal is to like um play often enough where actually like I'm I'm pretty decent right I don't know quite what that means like, like actually it's kind of hard to like say like exactly what your objectives are necessarily um but to be like someone who's actually good right like I'm not going to be world class given that there are other people who are like um as smart or smarter than me and devoting 100% of their lives to poker and not 10 or 15% or whatever um but I'm pretty studious about it um and trying to like learn. So if you if you grow up playing online limit cash games in two thousand and five, right? And now you're trying to play live no limit tournaments in two thousand nineteen, all those things involve like um a lot of transitions that you're making, right? I think some of the um some of the bad habits 
um, that I kind of carry over as a player might be like overly value betting, right? Might kind of be habits that kind of um, are derived from from limit, right? We do a lot of value betting and like not a lot of um, slow playing in limit, right? So that can, you know, you know, I have to be more careful with my value betting and no limit. And also um, you, you know, you have to have a, you have to think about what's your checking range in no limit. It's a much more important factor than in limit, right? And so it's kind of like making these um, adaptations and I don't know, um, I have had this year um, two final tables, nothing at any super sexy event, um, but one at a 1K buy-in at an event at Parks Casino in Philly, and then one um, at a deep stack tournament at Venetian during the World Series of Poker. Um, so there have been enough kind of like partial successes where I'm like, oh, actually, like I kind of, I kind of sort of know what I'm doing. Um, but also, like, I think now, like, if you, if I were like a professional poker player and I was like not at your level, right? Or like kind of a, a a grinder kind of pro, then I would be kind of like terrified of like all the solvers and all the kind of very strong um, coaching material you can get nowadays, right? And the sophistication now of like poker strategy, because like that would like take away from my edge. But for someone like me who kind of like is is like not dabbling in it, but like you know it's probably like the you know third or fourth most important focus where the first two kind of dominate everything else, right? At least professionally in terms of politics and sports. Like, you know, um, if you kind of understand some notion of what a GTO strategy is, um, both in theory and to some extent in practice, then like, then like you're probably a pretty decent player, right? Um, you're not going to have edge necessarily in like a tough, like, you know, 5k six max event or something but you're probably a pretty decent player um and making up for like a lack of like actual experience on the felt by um by understanding the the game theory behind it um and more and more of like kind of tried to like say okay i actually like i do just want to play like like gto um for a while i had this theory that like, okay i'm gonna have like my kind of my default nate style and then i can deviate into gto when um when it makes sense to against tough players, right? Which didn't really make any sense because number one, um, you know, GTO is very good. It's not exploitable, right? And it will win plenty of money against like kind of against um, bad players as well, right? So the notion like I could kind of in my spare time kind of craft like an exploitive strategy where I don't really kind of know the tendency of the player pool all that well, I think was like a little bit, um, a little bit foolish. So kind of more and more trying to explicitly play gto and then deviate from it when you have a clear reason to i mean certainly if you play in like your average um you know 1k buy-in tournament at borgata or at foxwoods or something i mean there are some to be frank like awful players there where you should kind of shift and be more um more exploitative um but like but you know i mean like i don't know it's like it feels like this kind of um shortcut almost um to a lack of at least poker experience in this traditional context or this, this new context of like no limit tournaments at the same time i think if i hadn't played poker um you know 13 years ago i wouldn't have the same like kind of card sense that i have um and so you know it's a combination of kind of the i mean the funny thing is like before when i played it was all very much by rote you know what i mean i would like study hands on two plus two and talk with people whatever else right but i like never really kind of studied game theory when I played poker before, right? Whole important concepts like, um, okay, 
what's your range? Or do you have a range advantage given this particular flop or whatever, right? Like it was all derived from just repeat business or repeat play and intuition, right? Like, so one thing I kind of figured out um, intuitively in, this is Limit Hold'em, right? It's like actually like playing suited connectors um, was valuable and Limit more than kind of some of the stock guys at the time recommended. Um, in part because of board coverage, which means that like um, if I have like a lot of sevens and eights and sixes in my range, for example, then people can't just kind of bluff me on those boards or kind of value bet relentlessly on those boards, right? If I'm only playing high cards and they're defending out of the blind, for example. Um, in fact, um, because you could also exploit people that way, right? It was kind of like, okay, if I play suit connectors, then either there's a high board and I can represent that hand. And at the time, people always, always assume the profile players were ace-king, right? Or you actually connect with the board. It's like either way, you had like a way to like like derive value from the hand. And so you would kind of back into things like one of the, I mean, the more basic thing is like, I played what at the time was considered like a very loose, aggressive strategy for Limit Hold'em, um, which I think it turns out is like actually like probably pretty close to GTO, if not even like a little bit too conservative. I think probably, I probably did not defend my blind nearly enough, even though I had a reputation like being, you know, never folding in my blind and always seeing showdowns. I mean, in, in, in limit, because you're often getting like, you know, 12 to one in the last three, you should not be folding a lot. Although it's kind of interesting to think about like, okay, when can you bluff in limit? Um, when can you make a thin value bet in limit, right? Every now and then I'll go play limit. If there's like a 40, 80 game or something like it's kind of to relearn it now is kind of interesting. Um, but I kind of, you know, just through, um, trial and error kind of backed into a style that was considered unconventional at the time but I think is actually probably pretty optimal. Well, it strikes me that you have uh, an absolutely perfect skill set for uh, quickly moving to the top rungs of poker. I I personally feel like poker is in a process of becoming somewhat boring because yeah, <laughs> it was it was always inevitable that given the the static nature of the game, it was going to yield to analytical methods and computing power. And that's happening at a very rapid clip. The only thing that keeps progress somewhat slow is the fact that computers who are currently playing much better than humans cannot explain why they do what they do. So we have to interpret mm -hmm. what they do based on our knowledge of game theory and, and analytics. Um, but it's clear that the best players going forward are going to be the ones that learn most effectively from computers. And that process is currently advancing at a very rapid clip. And the nature of the process is that the state of knowledge in say 2010 is fairly irrelevant. So I, I see from the outside that yeah. your <laughs> renewed interest in poker has a lot to do with the fact that you see that based on the way the game is evolving, you can jump everyone. Yeah, I, I, I truly believe that that's true because um, huge numbers of hands, huge parts of the knowledge base have become simply irrelevant based on the new things that we've learned from computers. And not only are they irrelevant, but they can slow your progress in the game because 
let's just say for me personally, where I'm clearly trying to advance along the same lines, um, you, um, you have to, when you're learning from computers, keep in mind, all right, where are the solutions sensitive and where are they not sensitive? And be most inclined to spend your time studying the situations where they're not sensitive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for and sure. And then additionally, um, let's say they are a little bit sensitive, so the solution is likely to break, or they are somewhat not important from an EV standpoint. Meaning, if you compare the EV of your old lines of play, which are clearly worse than the, than some of the new lines of play that you might be studying, the new lines of play are only a little bit more valuable, but they're much more complicated. Well, that might not be an avenue of study, a productive avenue mm -hmm. of study. Um, but there's, there's sort of an advantage that you might have over me because when I'm making that decision, um, if I, if I decide, okay, I understand these new lines of play better, these new lines of play that I'm learning from computers, um, and I think that now the EV is significant enough that I should, I should pursue those lines of play. Um, the problem is that I'm throwing away the entire experience base that I've built yeah. with the other line of play. And that's, uh, it's a costly and difficult process. Whereas you don't, you don't have to make that trade off. You can just, you can just say, all right, I'm going to study the best line of play in this spot and, and, and go with it. And then in terms of your focus on, on GTO play, I think that's absolutely, uh, correct. And I was sort of influenced uh, early on by uh, Matt Harolinko and Limit, who was very much of that philosophy that you should base on on GTO and had pretty strong reasons why you wouldn't want to venture into exploitive territory. And also in No Limit, uh, Ben Salsky, Sauce123, probably the best big bet player of his generation, who had the, who had the same philosophy very strongly that you don't, you don't want to deviate from gto because it creates unnecessary complexity and ultimately costly complexity um and i think that's just more true than ever before and you and you just want to base on on gto lines of play that said um if we look at how a typical tournament goes now i think basically tournaments now and into the future you're going to have um 70 of the field that is studying advanced material and advancing at a rapid clip and is getting closer and closer to each other in skill level. And then 30% of the field not studying and their edge is more and more negative. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So there's still going to be opportunities for that 70%, but it's going to be somewhat boring to play. No, it's, it's, felt, it's felt more and more that like, you know, um, it's always been this way. I've just been playing more stuff. But it feels like your table draw is like really important at these tournaments now. Right. Um, because the recreational gamblers are like losing more than ever. Um, you know, when people think people will like kind of hand in mob, um, their opponents say how much, what's your kind of lifetime cash is, right? I actually find that sometimes um, the old school pros, um, uh, I don't mean like the famous on TV pros, but some kind of grinder pro um, who's been playing for a while, those are often some of the more desirable people to have at your table um, because they will be kind of like, They'll be like you said. They'll have enough of knowledge base of things that worked before, but they're but um, but they don't have particularly sophisticated 
understanding of GTO and, um, you know, I mean, they might tilt a little bit also. I mean, people are not always playing their best, but, but yeah, I mean, and one thing too is like, I found that like when you actually like, um, like employ GTO derived strategies, like it often works quite well and it feels pretty good. Right. You know, um, you know, I think it's very important, um, under GTO to have a bluffing range in every spot, but especially since those spots come up so often, it's important to have like a, a pre-flop bluffing range. Right. Um, and so, um, hands with blockers or sometimes hands that can flop. Well, if you get called a city connector or whatnot, or a net flush hand. Um, so like, you know, it plays really well at the tables to like be three betting and four betting aggressively pre-flop. Right. It just kind of plays well. People are kind of terrified of you and they actually probably, they probably actually overfold a little bit. So it probably also works well as an exploitative play. Um, but against tough opponents too, are kind of keen to what you're doing. Like, like that's kind of the way that you often want to fight back. Right. Um, you know, your best street, if you're, if you're someone who, um, is smart, but not as experienced, like a top percentile pro, right. Um, you often want to get into big pre-flop raising wars for various reasons, including that, like, you know, it's probably the street where they have the least edge relative to you. You get to play pre-flop a lot. If you play poker once a month, right. You play a lot of pre-flop. You don't play that many rivers. Um, and so, you know, it helps a lot pre-flop, um, you know, recently been trying to like use more, um, use more finesse post-flop. Um, I'm probably have talked to you a lot about kind of almost every hand. I feel like I was playing this summer where hands were like, I would make like a big, um, a big overbet on some street, either for value or a bluff. And it might've been relatively balanced. Um, and the kind of thought was, okay, well, um, I'm nearly pot committed anyway if i put this amount in and uh and so i might as well put some um pressure on people to fold out marginal to more than marginal made hands and i'll mix in enough um strong hands that like i'm mixed and like not super readable right um which is like not a terrible way to play there can be exploitive context where it's where it's pretty good but it's not how the gto um bots play or the GTO solvers play, especially not in position um, where look a lot of time when you make a big overbit bluff, for example, um, you would also have an opportunity to bluff later on in that hand, given certain runouts that are favorable to you. Um, and the bluff might be cheaper and work almost as often. And often, sometimes you hit, you have a bad run out and you save money or, um, or you make a hand and you can put money in with the best of it, right? And so, like, you know, preserving flexibility, especially in position and not giving away too much information is something which the GTO bots seem to prioritize a lot. Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting the way that fields are evolving where you have, say, 70% of the people that are studying a lot and working on their games harder than ever before. The, the level of professionalism in poker has really... Has yeah. really come to a high level, um, and then thirty percent of the field that that's not working. Um, you get these really interesting dynamics where I find the most productive way to work on my game is to is to try to think in terms of GTO. Although I, I'll still slide into exploitive mode. Um, I find when I'm when I'm looking at fields and choosing players that I would back, say, um, in these fields where thirty percent is somewhat random just recreational players taking their shot i 
I tend to favor players who, in my experience, have a GTO base, but are quick to s slip into exploitive mode when it suits them. Like you had um, Justin Bonomo having that unbelievable year a couple years ago. And he uh, is really amazing at playing in weak fields because he's he plays perfectly against tough opposition. And then he he just beautifully slips into exploitive mode when it suits. And in particular, if he finds that a table is a little bit weak passive, he he will just open up his frequencies uh, to an insane degree and and it really it really works. He's alert to when to when to shut it down, like when he's being uh, responded to. Um, and he has he has a really nice game, although um, it's possible that, say, during his really successful year, maybe 40 percent of the field was strong and 60 percent was weak and it worked better than now when you have 70 percent strong and 30 percent weak. I mean, you think it's going to go to like different forms of poker? So like short deck or Omaha or or that people have spent less time with the solvers on? Or does that kind of give you even more of an edge to mathematically inclined studious players? Uh, well, the solvers now have the type of versatility where the solutions are coming quickly in all forms. Yeah. So um, it's hard to say. Like I, I put together a Poker After Dark lineup last year where just to mix things up, we had a huge Annie. And that just makes things a little different. Uh, I think messing around with the structures, like three blinds, bigger Annie's. Uh, or, Bounty or, tournaments, played one of those recently, that was fun. Yeah, never favored those so much, but I think, um, I think now we have very smart tournaments at the Aria, which is sort of becoming a, a center of poker. And uh, if you look at, say, their upcoming Poker Master series, they're having a short deck tournament and having a having an eight or ten game tournament, and then also having um, uh, big bet mixed game tournament, like three big bet games, not no limit or PLO. So, so I think I think that kind of variety is probably smart and coming. Yeah, my my intuition is that the poker economy is. Um fairly resilient in that, you know, I think um if I had to bet on like the World Series of poker number of main event entrants in five years, I would probably take roughly the status quo. I don't know, right? I, mean, uh, there are I, other... think, I think the over. Um yeah. we don't know what's becoming of the World Series of Poker. There are some complexities. It's probably moving locations and stuff like that. But but I I would I would say it continues to grow. Uh in part because you have some level of inflation, like ten thousand is a little bit less than it was yeah. ten years ago, I mean, and and then, and then so, yeah. um, poker, although it's somewhat steady in the United States, it's still expanding internationally, and you have a lot of people that are willing to make the trip. So uh, I think that just continues. Yeah, anecdotally, it seems like you have um, more players from China in this term, in these terms than you used to. More players from Latin America. Um, Obviously, um, there are countries like Germany where you have a lot of very good poker players. But, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, so you know, depending on uh, if I ever get to get my year long sabbatical, you know, hopefully poker will still be uh, still be thriving at that time. I love it. I love it. Okay, so we've gone well over time. We have to shut it down. This was amazing. Thank you. Cool. Thank you, Brandon.